Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and activity without end, but with no volition, is me before every deadline I've ever had. Writers know what I'm talking about. I'm joined on this episode once again by William Leisner. William is the author of Trek novels, The Shocks of Adversity, Losing the Peace, and A Less Perfect Union, and he's a three-time winner of the Strange New Worlds writing competition. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back aboard. Today we'll be talking about Spock's Brain, the first episode of the third season of Star Trek, the original series. Mel Brooks is held to have once said, sex is like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. And perhaps that axiom holds too for episodes of Star Trek. There are many episodes of the various series of Trek that have been held out as the, quote, worst ever, end quote. But no matter how reviled they are, you will unfailingly find some corner of the fandom that appreciates them for what they are, an earnest attempt to entertain and educate in a future that we can all aspire to. And there's room for all tastes in the world of Star Trek. Except Lazarus. Screw that guy. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. <laughs> But first, Bill, it's great to have you back on the show. It's actually been a little while since you've been on a proper episode of the podcast. Uh, you were on it our has been, yes. Yeah, you were on our Wrath of Khan live show a few years back, and we've had you on Discovery to talk about Discovery and Picard. Right. So we got to chat about Picard. Yes. Uh, speaking of Picard, uh, we talked about this a little bit when you were on Discovery, but what do you think of the new Picard series so far? I mean, I, I'm generally liking it so far. Uh you know, th there are a lot of questions that are, that are being raised and a lot of uh, yeah. choices that I'm seeing made. It's like, okay, and I, I, I will trust you. I, I, I'm still will willing to follow the writers and see where they're leading with all this. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly – I mean, I, I am enjoying it. And, you know, Patrick Stewart is back as John Luke Picard. Yeah, so. I know. <laughs> that's, that's, the big, you know? that's the selling point right there, yeah. What more can you ask? You could ask for more, but, you know, not much more. Right. It would be uh, selfish to ask for any more. Yeah. I saw an interview with Michael Shabin uh, recently uh, where he was uh, answering all your questions about Picard. And one question that was asked of him, and he doesn't, I mean, he's not in charge of the whole enchilada, but they asked him if we would see more episodic Trek in the future. And he said um, if there is a, uh, a hunger for it uh, and the stories lead there, we'll see it. And I would say I, I think there is a hunger for it. I see people online all the time uh, asking for the kind of you know Trek we remember, um, not the sort of disingenuous uh, fan who just complains that this isn't his Star Trek, but we've had two series now that are very serialized in the fashion of modern TV shows. But I think a lot of us miss the kind of um, episodic, self-contained stories uh, like the one we're going to talk about today. Uh, and his his opinion was, um, you know, if there is a, if there's an if there a want for that, uh, we'll see it. And so, what I want to know is, yeah. how do we communicate the want to him? Because I believe the want is there. Well, I mean, you know, like you said, there there are plenty of people who are saying, you know, quite vocally, a little bit more like the original series and TNG, a little more episodic. Yeah. You know, and the fact that they are now coming up with series after series. Yeah. You know, you got the section 31, you got the lower decks, you've got, you know, the other, you know, a couple of other untitled ones that they've, you know, just been hinting at. Yeah. But I mean, I, I'm sure that, you know, at some point in time, there might be a, there might be a move towards the more episodic episodes or, you know, more of a, melding of the episodic versus the serialized. Yeah. And we've already seen that in discovery um, at some points, um, but TV is just so different today than it yes. was when Trek launched. Yeah. We live in a strange time. I know you're a fan of the twilight zone as well as star Trek and over on CBS all access, we've got a revived Trek franchise as well as a new twilight zone series happening. We've got mission impossible at the multiplex. I mean, I'm expecting any minute for them to announce a new manic series and maybe a dark Mayberry RFD reboot. <laughs> well, that would be great. That would be great. Gomer Pyle as a uh, hardened <laughs> right. Marine veteran. And everything old is new again. I everything, guess it has to be. <laughs> you know, comes around. And, yeah. And I mean, I, I would not be terribly surprised that 
you know, a Mannix reboot. Uh, yeah, you could tell, you could totally do that. And of course, they've got Riverdale. I think that you could definitely take a uh, sort of more mature stab at at a Mayberry type show. I was thinking about the Outer Limits recently too, um, which they've brought back a few times, and. You know, as an anthology show uh, like Twilight Zone, it's totally self-contained. And accepting the success of Black Mirror recently, which has been a phenomenon, I'm not sure that you can really pull off a gotcha anthology series the way you could in, say, the 60s or or the 80s. I think audiences have become so smart uh, and so hard to shock that how to cook for 40 humans or whatever your twist is is not going to land the way that it used to. No, I agree. Uh, The audiences are a lot more sophisticated and they've seen a whole lot more than what we had 50 years ago. So I, you know, it'd be a real challenge to pull that off on with any kind of regularity. I have to wonder if old Rod Serling uh, was around today um, and wanted to make a TV show, like what he would, if he would try to do a, a Twilight Zone or a night gallery type thing, or if he would have to adapt with the times and, and what that would look like. I, th- I think Rod Serling would have a lot of fun with a long serialized show. Oh, really? Going back to his golden age tele- teleplay roots where, you know, they would do the, uh, you know, and such. I could see him wanting to do it like a longer four hour type of story with broken up into half hour pieces. That could be good. Um, of course, uh, you know, the fourth season of Twilight Zone, where they went to hour-long shows, um, I think it generally is held to be not as strong as when they were right. doing half hours. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a Twilight Zone thing. Yeah, but. yeah. Right. Uh, well, I would definitely like to see that. But unfortunately, uh, with the technology we have now, we, we can't have that. Uh, Star Trek Publishing is ramping up again as well in support of the new CBS properties. And so far, the books are mainly ancillary stories to the new shows, but I'm wondering if they'll eventually go far afield in terms of storytelling uh, and departing from the on-screen characters and storylines we see, like uh, like the pocketbooks line. Well, I'm sure they will. I mean, you know, the you know just two years old or two seasons old at this point in time. Right, right. I have absolutely no doubt that at some point in time they will do other types of, you know, taking a character focus and going off in some interesting direction that the television show would, wouldn't be the right format. If you had a chance to write a tie-in for a new series, what ship or character or era specifically would you want to work on? Who? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, my heart would be, doing something with Picard in the time between TNG and the Picard series. Yeah. Although I'm sure that that would be the place that everybody would go first. Well, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, time to fill in, too, in between TNG and Picard, yeah. It would be fun to do, like, a Giorgio and uh, Saru on the, uh, shoot, Senshao. Yeah. Show? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just do it. Just do a uh, one-off adventure with them. Yeah, I um, I hope somebody picks up the torch of um, the Klingon intrigue of the uh, Discovery era, um, mm-hmm. because uh, yeah, Klingon stories uh, and Klingon political stories are always interesting. And then having this character like Laurel, who is so different than a normal Chancellor, and the um the kind of pressures and uh, foes that she's making uh in that sphere i think that could be yeah. really neat too and it doesn't seem like discovery is likely to revisit that uh being centuries into the future now so right. there's no way to really get back so yeah that'd be certainly fertile ground for the tie-in series for tie-ins yeah well, I look forward to that hypothetical thing becoming real. Yeah. Uh, why did you choose this specific episode, Spock's Brain, to discuss today? Uh, just because I thought it would be fun. It's a, you know, it's of course the you know, regularly described as the worst episode of Star Trek. <laughs> I'm sure something that we will go back and forth about, but it's, you know, it, it's like that. Internet meme. If if you can't take me at my 
Spock's brain, you don't deserve me at your at my city on the edges forever. <laughs> right. You gotta take the whole thing. You gotta take the whole spectrum. Yeah. And you know, appreciate what there is as best you can. Yeah. Um if we've talked about the third season of Star Trek uh on the podcast previously, um but it was only like good episodes, like we talked about uh, the Enterprise incident, you know. So I'm interested today to sort of dig into um, just the third season as a whole and how, you know, like you said, there's good and there's bad. And of course, we'll talk about some of the stresses and the problems that the production was dealing with in the third season. And yet they still managed to turn out some episodes that are, you know, all time classics. Yes, I mean in spite of all the problems that they did have in that third season, some some of the episodes just rise up to the occasion and really still do stand up. Yeah. The, it's just, I, I'd love to, um, boy, I don't want to do it because I've got too much on my plate already, but I'd love to like listen to a podcast or something about television production in the 60s and 70s and the way that these people both kind of grounded out, but also just created such... Um, interesting things in mm-hmm. this very strict formula. Yep, seeing the creativity there, you know, shows like Bonanza and like a show like Gunsmoke, which was on for 20 years, you just, you couldn't even have that anymore. Oh, no. Absolutely not. It was really fascinating the way that, you know, and even though it was, you know, only the three networks. Yeah, that's true. They they put out, but they were doing like much longer seasons. Like 26 was, I think, the average season for a television show yeah and you know to just keep that up season after season was really a real accomplishment yeah and a lot of them and staring down you know the barrel of uh 26 episodes uh you were just forced to to you you had to approach it from like we've got to come up with a million stories this isn't a netflix series where we kind of have a movie idea that's maybe two hours of content and we need to stretch it into like 10 hours for this season of a netflix show we're just gonna have to come up get the cards on the board we got to come up with at least 26 stories to make this season of tv work like it things just don't even happen like that anymore that 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 barely exists anywhere nope it's a lost art form yes um and I would say, and I, I mean, I'm colored by nostalgia, but I would say uh, it's it's for the worse. But what do I know? These kids and their vaping Cybertrons these days. Maybe they like these uh, ten and ten season episodes. Yeah, these damn kids. They don't know how good it was. <laughs> they have no idea. There was so much bonanza. Back well, in my day, <laughs> I loved the Rifleman. Uh, we're talking about the original series episode, Spock's Brain. Uh, it was the first episode of the third season. It first aired on September 20th, 1968, the premiere of the third season. It was written by Lee Cronin, a pseudonym for former TOS showrunner Gene Kuhn. Kuhn was contracted to Universal after leaving Star Trek uh, in the second season. Technically not allowed to write for anyone else but Universal, so his nom de plume was used on four episodes of the third season, Spectre of the Gun, Spock's Brain, Wink of an Eye, and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. It was directed by Mark Daniels, who we've talked about time and time again on the show. He's one of the uh, early Trek's most prolific directors. This was actually the last episode that he directed for TOS, as he was unhappy with the budget cuts that faced the third season production. He did later write the animated series episode, One of Our Planets is Missing, and he directed the pilot of Gene Roddenberry's Planet Earth. The date, star date for this episode is 5431.4, and your assignment, Bill, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Spock's brain. Aliens steal Spock's brain. Kirk goes to save it. <laughs> I think the challenge here is to make it 25 words, but yeah, uh, 25 words or less. The challenge to is to stretch out because that's really all there is right. to it. Yeah, the pain and the delight, uh, brain, brain, one is brain, and that's about it, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, here are some interesting facts from our memory banks about this episode. Uh, the script for this episode went through a number of changes after Gene Kuhn's initial draft. Originally, Spock's brain was uh, taken away. Uh, the titular brain was taken while the away team was exploring an asteroid. Also, the teacher device uh, was a later addition. Uh, in the original draft, McCoy performed the reattachment procedure with his own medical skill and a little help from studying the planet's advanced surgical techniques. Also, the procedure wasn't exactly perfect as some of Spock's nerve endings were crossed, causing him to do things like laugh instead of sneeze, a problem that Spock himself corrected through his own mental discipline. It was apparently series producer Bob Justman's idea that Spock himself be involved in directing the procedure by having his speech centers repaired early in the process. This is the only episode of the original series that contains a main character's name. That practice would accelerate with later iterations of Trek, uh, giving Q8 episodes containing his name in the title, as well as three for Data, two for Bashir, one for both Troy and Quark, and one half a piece for Tuvok and Neelix, depending on how you view Tuvix. <laughs> I would say that that's just Tuvix's name in the title, but not everyone agrees with me. There are a lot of shots of the front of the bridge in the early scenes of this episode, which we don't always get. Uh, it's also the first episode to feature a character walking in front of the main viewer, which is made possible by using rear projection instead of the usual matting process. And maybe that was a money-saving feature as the show's budgets were slashed for season three. Another note on thrif thriftiness, Fred Steiner's score for this episode would be reused in later season three episodes, namely The Tholian Web and The Day of the Dove. Footage of the iMorg's computer working were also reused shots from earlier episodes, uh, Assignment Earth and the Paradise Syndrome. Uh, this is the only time we hear a log entry by Mr. Sulu on the series, and it's one of five times that Sulu takes command of the ship in Kirk's absence. And I should mention that uh, former show guests Paula Block and Terry Erdman's book, Star Trek 101, names this as the series' worst episode, and the Spock's Brain Award was awarded to the worst episode of each series as voted on by fans. That was uh, the Lorelei signal for, for the animated series, Genesis for TNG, Profit and Lace for DS9, Threshold for Voyager, and These Are the Voyages for Enterprise. And I'm going to say the Lorelei signal, what? That, that's a pretty good episode. It's not that bad. I yeah, mean, I think it's a neat idea. You have to pick something, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, this list is invalid then. Um, I have to mention that Spock's brain gets an oblique shout-out in a song by 90s band Semisonic, the last verse of their song Never You Mind, off their 1998 album Feeling Strangely Fine begins. Switch on the box, Mr. Spock is on the table, Dr. McCoy is unable to connect his brain, sweating and straining, well, it seems so simple at the time. Now let's talk about the guest stars in this episode. There's really only one guest star of note. That's Marge Doucet, who plays the role of Kara. Doucet got her start in film with a small role in the 1967 Elvis Presley film Clambake. She went on to a long career in TV and film, appearing as a guest star in shows like Wild Wild West, Hogan's Heroes, and Family Affair. Her longest running role was on the CBS soap Guiding Light, where she played Alexander Spaulding until the show was canceled in 2009, after which she retired from acting. And she recently passed away on January 28th, 2020. Just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was very recently, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the episode itself. Uh, like I said before, we've talked about the third season, uh, sometimes called the third season of TOS on the show <laughs> before. We've talked about its problems, uh, but we've never talked about them through the lens of what some consider one of the worst, if not the worst, TOS episodes, Spock's Brain. And I guess I would immediately ask, is it really the worst? It's way down there, yes. Oh, no, it's not top 10. It's not top I mean, 25. <laughs> I mean, you, you you can try to argue for the alternate factor or for you let that be your last battlefield. I'd put And the but, Children Shall Lead in there. And the Children Shall Lead is definitely a contender <laughs> Old as Melvin well. Belly, yeah. But, you know, you get you have this episode which was the first episode of the third season right after the big letter-writing campaign yes. to save the show, to get it back onto the air. And here, here it comes. It's fall of the TV season. Here's the big premiere episode. And... Brain, brain, what is brain? Yeah. <laughs> brain, brain, what is brain? The, 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 the show basically starts with you know, 20 seconds of silence or of no dialogue. Sure. Of, as they're just looking at the screen. Yeah. And they're walking around the bridge looking at the screen and looking at the councils. 
Yeah, that's not great. Um, this episode was sixth in production, and it was bumped up, of course, to take advantage of Spock Mania, just like Amok Time was. I think that was the fifth uh, in production for season two, and they bumped both of the uh, episodes up to the premiere so people could get some more Spock, but that, in this case, was um, not, a, not a good choice. No, I mean... It- Spock was in the title, and that was pretty much it for Spock in this episode. <laughs> I know. I, I wonder if, you know, we've all heard that, like, uh, Nimoy and Shatner had, like, clauses in their contracts that um, they had to have the same amount of lines or, or whatever. And I, I don't know if Shatner won a bet or, or, or what, but Spock just, I mean, maybe he's got the better end of the deal because they have maybe the same amount of lines, but he's not on screen for a lot of it. And then when he is, he's just sort of walking around and not saying or doing anything. It seems asymmetrical. Yeah, it was an easy week for Leonard, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, Leonard Nimoy did say uh, that during the uh, shooting of the episode, he was embarrassed. He said, uh, a feeling that overcame me many times during the final season of Star Trek. But it's easy to pile on in retrospect. And who can blame him? Yeah, uh, surely people criticize the idea of taking his brain out, you know, and it powering a computer as being ridiculous. But surely that's no stranger than putting Keiko's baby inside of Kira or um, people evolving into salamanders. Or here's something that gets glossed over in Trek, but there is like crazy elective plastic surgery in their world. Like you can make somebody into you can make a Klingon into a Romulan and vice versa. Uh, what do they do with, do they cut your forehead bones off and just put them in a jar until you come back? That's a good question. I wonder if they have like little boxes of leftover parts that they're just (laughs) swapping around and (laughs) what's the side? Oh, wait, he's not coming back. Well, we'll just, you know, do we, do we bury this with him if he didn't come? (laughs) Yeah. Like when you, yeah, when you cut something away, do they just, you know, throw it in the medical waste and then say you're, um, say you're a Romulan who has your ears, you know, bobbed down to human, uh, and they use a, a flesh knitter or whatever on you. Does it grow based on your DNA? Does it grow back your ear the way it should be? It's just, it's, it's kind of squicky to, to think about. Um, but apparently, uh, taking somebody's brain out, that's too far. You know, I, it's not a bad science fiction idea, you know, taking the brain. Oh, yeah. And, you know, taking for, you know, other purposes. I mean, what, what makes the episode ridiculous is he has this little shiny neckerchief over his head and <laughs> you, you can't, you know, there's no telling, you know, did they actually even cut open his his skull or is that just covering up like a yeah and they don't shave his head they don't do anything (laughs) they just have him laid out on the table yeah cloth over his head well his brain is missing (laughs) right yeah (laughs) so i mean you know if, if 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 they had you know of course you you know in 1969 you couldn't have bloody bandages all over his head and right yeah, we fixed Stumble. that. We fixed that now on uh, shows like Picard. We've definitely upped what we can uh, show in terms of uh, blood and guts. Yes, much more blood and guts in Picard, but but yeah, I mean that you know the idea could have worked. Yeah, there is a lot. Uh, you know, there's a there's a phrase uh, in um, writing hat on a hat when you've got a lot of uh, sort of premises stacked on each other, and we've got. A underground city that uh, runs, uh, is controlled by a computer, but that computer is an organic brain. You've got a race of women uh, who have no knowledge at all uh, unless they're required to um, buy their society so they can use the teacher device and suddenly they can get temporary knowledge. But they're sort of in struggle with a race of primitive men uh, who live on the planet's surface who are also like caveman guys uh, with like... Prince Valiant haircuts. They had to have that. They had to have the fringe in front. And so there's just a there's a lot happening in this episode. I don't think that it's necessarily too much. There are definitely more complicated Star Trek episodes. But you got an episode like A Taste of Armageddon, where we get it. It's like a future world. Um, they're at war, but they have sort of made war into an accounting thing, and they might have like technology that's higher or lower than the Enterprise, but. 
that's the problem we have to solve. But there's so many things going on here, and yet none of them are really explored. It's just a quest to the heart of this planet to get Spock's brain. And then once they get it, yeah. Spock even begins to sort of talk about, wow, this is a really fascinating idea. You've got these women down here. You've got these men up there. And we just, ah, shut up, Spock. And the episode's over. Yeah, they they set this up with no... I with no idea of exploring it or <laughs> why it happens no or how to. they're related to to each other. Yeah. <laughs> why why are the men on the surface? Why are the women down below? Yeah, and it's it's one more civilization that Kirk has destroyed in the name of, of progress. Yeah, yeah. You're going to ruin us. Yeah, you'll get by. <laughs> He's gotten good at that uh, yeah. in his career. Yeah, uh, this episode was you said before, um, or we've we've been talking about how this episode is rated the lowest by many different outlets. Uh, it was rated the third worst episode of all the episodes of the uh, original series, or actually all of the episodes of the Pre-Discovery series uh, in 2017 by Screen Rant, uh, CBS News. Uh, <laughs> I guess they're uh, an expert on Trek now. Uh, I'm not sure when this is published. Uh, called it one of the worst of the original series. Uh, Fox News ranked Spock's Brain as the number one worst episode of all Star Trek up to 2018. However, opinions aren't all bad, and some of them are kind of coming back around on it. Uh, in 2012, the AV Club called it one of the top 10 must-see episodes of the original series. In 2013, Wired Magazine called it one of the top 10 most underrated episodes. Uh, in 2016, Sci-Fi.com included the episode in a group of Star Trek episodes that were uh, commonly disliked but deserved a second chance. And in 2017, the uh, Den of Geek website ranked this episode as the second best worst Star Trek episode of the original series. Oh, and author and former show guest Keith DeCandido gave it a 4 out of 10 in his Tora Review series and said, you know, essentially, eh, come on, guys, it's not that bad. I love Keith, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Keith. Uh, four is a little high, I, I think. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's... It's terrible. There's no two ways around it. It's terrible. But there are parts in it where it's like, it's so terrible, it's interesting. Sure. There's there's some entertaining little bits to it. The, the very idea of Spock being controlled by a remote-controlled clicker. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a sight to see. Yeah, remote-control Spock. Uh, I love how he makes like a a fishing reel sound when he walks like a yeah. slowly reeling a fishing reel. Yeah. And then of course that there's a lot of uh, functionality on that remote control. It's got the uh, finger moving to press button uh, flywheel that you can turn there. Uh, a lot of fine control. Yeah. Um, that, you, that you can work while you are laying on the floor in exquisite. Agony. Yeah. Right. <laughs> in the worst pain you've ever felt. Yeah, you, it, can't, you can't see where his finger is, but you can maneuver it. You get a sense of it, though, yeah. It, it never, uh, I think like you said, it never really goes full camp. Like, it never goes as far as it should. And I think that's kind of the problem with, I mean, I guess you don't aim for an episode to be bad, but the bad episodes of Star Trek can't go full camp because... That, that that's kind of antithetical to Trek. I think what people are reacting to when they say it's so bad, and I think this is a compliment for Trek um, and its stated purpose, um, is that being camp is is antithetical to Trek. Um, Trek's purpose was to deliver serious adult sci-fi in the primetime hour, and it was supposed to contrast with Lost in Space or My Favorite Martian or whatever. And it does. It has throughout its existence. But there's an extremely faint line between pathos and parody. And some episodes cross that, but not not in a self-aware way where they can just give you uh, just a goofy, fun time for an hour. Yeah, and I kind of wonder if they were trying to get as close to camp as they could. And, you know, uh, Gene Kuhn had also previously written uh, a piece of the action yeah. and bread and circuses, which certainly have their lighter, jokey moments. And, you know, when you give a show a name like Spock's Brain... <laughs> you're kind of laying it out there. <laughs> you, you kind, it it kind of seems like if you're not going to camp then for camp, then what are you doing? <laughs> right, why is this happening? Yeah, Gene Kuhn fought hard to bring comedy to track. Um, like you mentioned, he wrote a piece of the action and he was an advocate of episodes like The Trouble with Tribbles. Because I think he knew that it couldn't always be this tense space 
uh, space action show. And I think Roddenberry had little time for the comedy side of the franchise. You know, reportedly clashes over issues like that is one of the reasons that Kuhn quit. Um, but even though I like Spock's brain in all its terribleness, I can kind of see Roddenberry's point about how, I don't know, maybe the premise of the show can't go there. And maybe this crosses too far into self-parody. Yeah. It was... It might have been it might have been a noble experiment, but uh, <laughs> didn't quite pan out. However, however, they might have really intended it. Yeah, and it's, and it's so hard to know what they really, you know, what what Gene Kuhn intended yeah. and what ended up on the screen because of budget cuts and because of producers who didn't really know Star Trek as well as Gene and Dorothy Fontana and that. I think about like episodes of other Star Trek shows that seem to be going for pure comedy, and I'm not sure they're all that successful either. You think about something like um, Menage Troy, <laughs> <laughs> or DS9 had some episodes that were supposed to be funny and were pretty funny, but there's episodes like the one where um, Luxana comes to the station and she's her telepathy is affecting everybody. So they're all falling in love with with each other, and it's just it's just kind of forgettable. A little comedy goes a long way in Star Trek. <laughs> That's true. That's a great point. And when you when you, when you try to go all out with, you know, like like some of the Ferengi episodes on Deep Space Nine. But you had the Ferengi to kind of be that right. on right. the show yeah yeah but you can still go too far there's still there's still your profit in links <laughs> yeah that's true I, I don't know if i would argue with that um even like move along move along home home is is sort of my threshold for ds9 actually i don't think that threshold is as bad as people say it is um and move along home it's not great either <laughs> but i can kind of see how they thought that it would <laughs> make a good ds9 or a good star trek episode um Star Trek barely escaped cancellation in 1968, and maybe it didn't, because when it came back, it was not in a position where they were, it was not in a position of success. Um, The production had changed greatly, the budgets were slashed, they were at around 175,000 an episode, down from 190 in the first year, when it was already tough to make ends meet. Gene Kuhn had departed as showrunner and executive producer, um, Fred Freiberger, you know, was now the showrunner, but a lot of people feel like he was not right for the role. Uh, Arthur S- Singer was like the story writer and like head writer, and a lot of people felt like he didn't understand the material. They were taking scripts from non-staff writers, not the full open submission of later Trek, but people who were not really on the staff. They lost Jerry Fitterman, the series-long cinematographer, um, after The Empath early in the th- third season. And the show's time slot didn't help either. Uh, Roddenberry had initially been promised a prime 7.30 p.m. Monday time slot. Um, but that would have bumped the uh, highly, the most highly rated series on the network, Laugh-In, uh, out of their spot. And George Schalter, producer of Laugh-In, threatened to leave the network if they didn't keep up, uh, keep that slot. So Trek ended up instead in the Friday 10 p.m. death slot. And there's just no, there's no better way to tell a producer that you don't care about their show than to put them at 10 p.m. on Friday. Right. And you can tell, you know, I, I've read, you know, once that happened, the cast and the crews knew that this was going to be the end. And they were basically at that point just kind of like, okay, let's just get through this final year and right. <laughs> right. get on with our careers. Tell their agent to start looking around for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Roddenberry also threatened to leave if he didn't get his way, but. Of course, he didn't, and he ultimately stayed on as an executive producer, but basically left the day-to-day running of the show at that point. He actually got a development deal at MGM, and I think he was working on a Tarzan adaptation for MGM, which is sort of this um, sort of Don Quixote-esque project that he had been working on for a long time. And he got his only feature film credit at MGM, 1971's Pretty Maids All in a Row, which is a terrible, terrible film. And if nothing else, was a great argument for not canceling Trek, just to keep that <laughs> to keep that movie from existing. I've never had the pleasure of seeing that. So. Yeah, um, boy, it's hard to recommend. But I guess if you're a Roddenberry completionist, maybe you should. Uh, I was surprised to learn that the show, uh, which was canceled in '69, February '69. 
uh, had um, the possibility of getting uh, two more episodes uh, tagged on to the end of the season, which, of course, they didn't. And one of them would have been directed by William Shatner. Oh, not aware of that. There was an episode or, or a treatment called The Joy Machine, uh, which he would have directed. Oh. I was thinking about the third season and the way that America itself had been changing just over the course of the last three years of that decade. And it must have been really hard for, for Trek to keep up. I mean, if you're trying to capture the zeitgeist, you're a show about basically American imperialism in space. Uh, and in the meantime, in the real world, you know, the Democratic National Convention's on fire. Um, Martin Luther King and uh, Bobby Kennedy are shot. Nixon's elected. Utopia in the real world must have seemed farther and farther away. Yes, absolutely. And I think of that when I look at uh, what's going on today. And it's like everything is always there have always been bad times. And mm-hmm. We've always found a way to get through them. Although it's like, <laughs> it, it kind of like characters on a TV show. You know, when you get to that fifth or sixth season finale, it's like, oh, we're going to get out of this one. I don't know. And they always <laughs> do. But I feel like we're running out of tricks uh, from a societal perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Trek knew that um, those kind of stories would sell and they put a lot of uh, social commentary stories into the third season. Um, you've got the anti-war message of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Uh, also an anti-racism uh, message in that episode. Uh, Day of the Dove is very anti-war. Uh, you have a little bit of anti-discriminatory theater uh, with the kiss between Kirk and Uhura and Plato's stepchildren. Um, Trek is still is still doing Trek, you know, whether or not their budgets are slashed and the, the uh, names on the chairs have been changed a little bit. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there were they were doing some good episodes. I mean, they were with oh, they had a whole lot going against them, but they were still trying. There are um, some of my favorite episodes are actually third season episodes. Um, I really like uh, Enterprise Incident. All Our Yesterdays is, is a great episode. Um, I, it's not great, but I like it. Uh, For the world is hollow, and I've touched the sky. I think is a is a really interesting episode. Um, of course, Day of the Dove, uh, the Tholian Web is fun. Yeah, there were there were some gems in the in the oh gem <laughs> in the third season, and uh, like you you said earlier, you wondered if Trek didn't end after two seasons, and you know if there hadn't been a third season, that probably never would have gotten the syndication deals oh, that it did sure. in the seventies. Yeah, and it would have been forgotten and buried in Paramount's vaults for probably to this day until CBS started going through old properties and going, <laughs> what can we put on CBS wow. all access? <laughs> well, they did a lost in space reboot on right. Netflix. So right, right. maybe, maybe we can do something with this uh, Star Trek thing. Yeah. I, I, people would have, I think had some demand for it in some fashion. Um, the the real the real mystery to me, or it's not a mystery, I guess. I, I guess I understand it's just the way that TV was back then. But as soon as the show went off, they sort of figured out or discovered that oh my god, there's a huge fan base, and now there are conventions every year, and people mm-hmm. love and miss it. And but the way that the machine worked back then, they just didn't think. Well, there's no there's no way to like make money off of this. Like nowadays, they'd immediately turn around and go, "Oh, all right, new Netflix series." Um, well, they do what they're doing, you know, a cartoon show, uh, show for kids, show on this network, that network, uh, and it. But it just sort of laid fallow, even though so many people liked it. So I think even if there'd be less to like, but even if there's only two seasons, I think um, we'd still remember it. What if what if Trek had reached four seasons? Um, what do you think would have happened? There's a sort of a unofficial rule, I think, in Trek that Star Trek shows really start to hit their stride, you know, you know, in the middle or late part of their third season. And then the fourth season, is they kind of take off. So if Trek had had that opportunity, like TNG or DS9, what do you think the fourth season might have been like? That's a good question. Uh, that would, I think, rely a whole lot on would that have maybe kept... Dorothy Fontana in the fold? Would that have brought 
other people, you know, who would that have brought into the fold? You know, if David Gerald might have come on as a staffer or. Sure. But that's interesting. Yeah. Because uh, we would be talking about the 69 to 70 season. Right. You'd be right after the moon landing, which would probably give a creative jolt to at least some people. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that would, you know, and then you would have, you know, what would you have? You'd have 79 plus. So close to 100 episodes for your syndication package. Right. Which would probably have pushed fandom even higher than it was in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, of course, I don't think, I don't, you know, it's hard to say how long the show could have run given the fact that it was a visual effects heavy show which at a time when that was very expensive to do. Right, right. Yeah, usually so it's just like <laughs> yeah, Mannix is just on the apartment set for this week uh, grilling somebody yeah, on on your right. normal show. And there's only so many times that you can just go to the rock planet with the <laughs> fuchsia sky. Yeah, orange sky or blue sky, which guys what do you want this this week? Or green sky. Ooh, green sky. Yeah, so but yeah, that'd be interesting. It's I think, an interesting thought experiment. Uh, yeah, I, I, it could have definitely, assuming that, well, who knows? I mean, it could have brought people like Kuhn and Fontana back to the production. Or maybe people like Arthur Singer and, and Fred Freyberger would have um, kind of figured things out more. Um, I, I would be interested uh, to see, I wish I could run a computer simulation to see how Trek would have handled... Um, 69 to 70 or 70 to 71 or any of the tumultuous years of like the Nixon presidency, the Vietnam War, because as much as I love, I think Trek has evolved into what it always wanted to be, but I don't think it started that way. I mentioned before that it was sort of American space imperialism and I think Gene had a good soul, but it's so much of it is rooted in what we think of as that sort of pre-60s um, Americanism and I wonder if it would have been able to navigate those waters or if we would see Kirk uh, giving like a pro-Vietnam <laughs> metaphor in some like in some episode <laughs> being like you gotta keep fighting it doesn't matter um, yeah I wonder how it would have uh, would have dealt with that see that's what I, people do these um, these web series and they put so much time and energy and, and, and just um, into them and make them so um, fascinating and creative, but I want to see somebody like take it in a, in a different direction. Like, uh, give us the the fourth season and just pretend, just get a bunch of newspapers from the 1969. And just pretend that you're writing based on like what the current events are. Then that would be something. That's what a yeah. That's what a holodeck's for. Give me a holodeck and a computer that can compute all that out. <laughs> the planet of Nixon. The planet of Nixon. <laughs> that's yeah. Well, you got uh, President Capone, and you get the planet of Nixon's. Yeah. This uh, this episode has flaws. Uh, we, we've definitely talked about that. Um, I think it's a real go-to for them. It's an interesting idea to have this separation, this sort of like uh, Morlock and Eloi, but, you know, flipped. Um, but, of course, the women are all in go-go boots. You know, it looks like a civilization mm-hmm. of the Valley of the Dolls. And that's pretty typical, I think, for Trek at this time. Um, right. This this episode has that quality that a lot of bad uh, Star Trek and a lot of bad TV has, which is... A lot of stalling, a lot of repeated dialogue, and Shatner is really drawing out some of these line readings. I mean, literally, probably to make the runtime of the show. Yes, this is uh, Shatner at his Shatner yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the pauses and the emphasis. Right. <laughs> Where well, is... Where's his brain? We're going to get his brain. I say brain about 40 times. Um... I did like that they managed to fit a classic Trek fight scene in for no real good reason, but uh, they framed it as, oh, we're going to use science, and then they beat the crap out of these guys. Science works every time, yeah. (laughs) Classic, classic Kirk Fu, you know, fight sequence there, and he's, you know, it's McCoy and Scotty against one, and Kirk all by himself against the other one. Of course, yes. With his flying kicks and his (laughs) two-fisted chops and... Yeah, Shatner looks good in this episode. You know, people always talk about like his fluctuating weight, but I thought he was um he came in ready to play in uh, the beginning of season 3. 
And his hair, you know, his toupee is on full blast now. That that's that's a given. <laughs> but it's you can tell the late sixties is creeping in because they're a little uh, they're a little shaggier now. They're not quite as uh, brill creamed yeah. and clipped up as they were previously. They are. I was thinking about this uh, as I was contemplating the episode that you literally have a, dis- uh, a situation here that is like the vaunted Spock decision in Star Trek Two, where he sacrifices himself because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Yes. And Kara literally points out that the need of her people for the controller is greater than the need for the friend. And yes. yeah. I guess maybe Spock doesn't fully get to make this decision because it's Kirk doing it. But they basically say, nah, we, we need that brain back. Yeah, I, I caught that as well. And it was like Spock probably would have, if he was totally in control, would have gone, yeah, that's probably a better idea. And I can live a thousand, ten thousand years like this, and <laughs> right, yeah. He seemed to kind of like his situation. <laughs> yeah, he kind of liked being a brain in a jar. Yeah, he, he wasn't. He wasn't uncomfortable. He wasn't. You know, he he didn't have anything to complain about. Right. He wasn't complaining about anything. I don't know where the hell I am, but. Maybe that is, I suppose, as a brain, you would still have your emotions to deal with, um, but without the. Um, the lusts, you know, or the stimuli of the body. Maybe uh, the brain in the jar situation would be a perfect uh, setup for a Vulcan. Probably so. Let's hope they don't think of doing of that. The, <laughs> one of the interesting things is that, you know, they needed this organic brain to run their city, but he's apparently only the AC. Mm. He's only, you know, he's breathing, he's purifying water. Right. But he's not actually, you know, we, there's no description of him actually, okay, here's the function of the city, and I have to make sure that, you know, this delivery gets to this factory, and yeah, you would almost think that he could, as the controller, control the bracelets all by himself without, mm. you know, Kirk and his magic remote control. Yeah, we never get into how exactly the uh, morgues and I morgues are going to keep their civilization going. Um, I think it's implied that they're just going to have to abandon the uh, facility underground and just live with the morgues on the surface, which um, there's a lot of hardship coming for them (laughs) since they're apparently have childlike intellects. (laughs) I don't think they're going to be building shelters anytime soon. Yeah, there's and, you know, you get absolutely no idea of. You know, how, how are the morgues living, surviving? Are they hunting? You know, there's no wildlife that we see. Are they <laughs> hunter-gatherers? Are they... Yeah. They do. They're wearing furs uh, straight from uh, the costuming department. So presumably there's some kind right. of uh, animal on, on, on the surface. But that's, that's really an interesting um, or that's really a more interesting conflict, too, if they are in position to rescue Spock's brain and Spock makes... The, the point that it would be better for him to uh, to save all these people uh, rather than to get one first officer back. And then the last part of the episode is them having to struggle with Spock uh, to convince him to, to come back. There, there are lots of ways, you know, that this could have been rewritten. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's a, mistakes were made. <laughs> mistakes were made. Yeah. I I I I really wonder what the discussion was when it was like, okay, this is good enough. Yeah. This this draft this draft of the script is good enough. It's like, um, Gene Kuhn saying, no, that that's just that's just my outline. Uh, right. I wasn't done with that. I was going to have give Dorothy. me a couple more weeks and yeah. I can actually. No, no, don't bother. We'll just film it like it is. Right. Yeah. It's not it's not quite done, guys, but okay, yeah. Um I can imagine yeah, I can imagine tuning in as a fan and seeing that and thinking, maybe the what's going on over on that other channel there? What 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 are the uh boys doing on Bonanza? Uh but if if you stick with season three, there are definitely some good ones. But then you reach the lights of Zetar and you're like, Okay, I quit. <laughs> and the the finale, I mean Oh boy, it's. I think it's amazing uh, that Turnabout Intruder. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible that Trek exists at all after Turnabout Intruder. And yet it does. It does, though. Fifty years later. That's right. 
Well, as we get to the end here, was there anything else that you wanted to say or point out or, or any favorite moments from the episode you wanted to mention? Oh, favorite moments. Well, we all know our favorite moment is from this episode. What's that? Brain and brain. What is brain? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, you really do have to hand it to Marge Doucet for actually delivering that with some kind of believability of this of this really just simple-minded person who is just overwhelmed by these aliens. and Yeah. And then she does do a very good switch once she's gotten the teacher and she's, you know, and then she's turns into a very different character. Right. Right. Yeah. That was a good, good job by her. Um, I, I, um, I had to call out, I don't know if they've ever done this on the show before, but Scotty's like Scotty's own little Scotty foo move where he pretends to faint mm. to distract somebody. And then, oh, <laughs> that was, you know, that, that was something that I had, and when I saw that in my most recent rewatch, it was like, are you blanking me? <laughs> are you crapping me? It reminds me of, you know, the the way that the Vulcan nerve pinch came about, which was they just needed, you know, a way to subdue this character. And Nimoy's like, well, I don't think I'd punch him. What if I did this? Okay, fine. Did they have a similar situation where Scotty's like, well, I don't think I would like hit a girl. What if I just pretended to faint? And they're like, fine, whatever, fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to go down with the the Vulcan nerve pinch, I don't think. And I think, and Kirk knew it was coming. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they've worked together for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We didn't see that scene where he's like, now, if anything goes wrong, you faint dead away. I'll be ready to go. Just, just, just pass out like a, like a little wilting flower. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like you've had a little too much of the green stuff. Um, (laughs) I like the uh, reaffirmation that no matter how desperate Kirk is and how much he wants the brain of his friend and first officer back, uh, he still is a Starfleet officer. Um, We get a lot of guns pointed at people, but he's, you know, he makes a point of like, no, no one can kill a man. That's not what we're here for. That's not what we want. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's really neat. Um, I also like, man, uh, D. Kelly, as always, is great in this episode. And the idea of going from, you know, uh, I could cure a rainy day, you know, in uh, Devil in the Dark to him actually having the ability to possibly cure uh, a rainy day and then losing it. And we've got a lot of great shots of D. Kelly's sweat upper lip in this episode. You know, he's just like trying to trying to work this out and having the conclusion be Spock helping him out with the procedure. Uh, and chagrining him even more is uh, that's a really great that's a, that's a Star Trek right there. That you know that 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 is a classic McCoy Spock button to the, the scene. Right, yeah, never I never should have reattached his vocal cords. <laughs> Trying to thread a needle with a sledgehammer. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I also want to point out that that teacher prop was kind of cool. Yeah, admit, that was. You know, low budget that they were going through. That was a nifty little prop. I have to wonder if it began life as uh, a hair dryer, like they had in the old uh, salons <laughs> of yore, or if they just found I, the perfectly shaped piece of perspex and they're like, "All right, let's stick some knobs into this." It, it looks like it probably came out of a beauty parlor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is fitting for the uh, the Council of the Valley of Dolls. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also like just the last thing I wanted to say uh, when they get into fight with the cavemen. Uh, the cavemen have their primitive weapons and they're throwing rocks, and then one guy just throws his club at them end over end. It's like who throws a club? Yeah, he had a spear or something, but they couldn't afford that, so he just took his paper mache club and just whipped it at Captain Kirk. Let's talk about uh, space dads. I think the last time you were on the show, you said that Picard was your favorite captain. And I guess I'd have to ask how you think that Picard would have handled this situation. Who? Let's say Riker's brain. Oh, my God. I want to see that episode so bad. Uh, Riker's brain. Riker's brain. It's taken away. Uh, what happens? Well, well, it would have been it would have, would have been Data's brain, probably. But, mm, well, yeah. I but feel Riker's like, brain. That's right. We've kind of had that episode, haven't we? In something like The Most Toys. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. We, you kind of have had that. And... But let's, you know, 
I think Picard would have spent more time trying to suss out the Morgan E. Morg. Sure. Boy, I can't, you know, to, to, to even try to transpose this episode <laughs> in 20 years further into the future of, of television sophistication is just like, can't, can't, can't quite wrap my mind around that. It's funny because I know it's, it's necessary for the plot of the most toys, but they basically just write data off immediately. Immediately, they're like, "That's that's a sad end," and then they, we got a, we got a mission to do, and they just kind of continue their mission. Um, but I'd have to, yeah, I think Picard would be much more interested in what's going on between the uh, the Morgan, the I Morgan, and the conflict between yeah. them, and maybe we'd get a um, a Darmok situation where he's spending a lot of time. Uh, with Kara trying to to really get through to her. So it isn't that we're just taking this away. I'm going to make you understand uh, that we need this back, but perhaps we can provide you with something that will you know replace it in its stead. Or maybe they'd avoid yeah. the whole thing because is this a f- uh, General Order 1 situation? Well, they they initiated contact, so Yeah, they got that crazy not. ion drive. That, that's right. Yeah, they have that crazy ion drive. You have to wonder why the controller would have set up a system where you have to go and jump into this ion drive thing every 10,000 years <laughs> when there's actually with no idea what's actually out there. Right. When when right next door there there are two other planets with sentient life forms. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, there's no uh, Nobel genius on the uh, 2030 planet. You just can't grab that guy's brain. Yeah, go go and go and grab the Stephen Hawking from the other planet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, or a Da Vinci from the uh, the 1400s planet. There or, you go. Oh, yeah. That would have worked, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got that. I don't know what this controller is doing. We've got it figured out. Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, uh, you'll receive a promotion to the rank of Lieutenant Commander, thanks to your service Woo-hoo. on the first episode and, of course, the uh, live episode from Convergence. Now, I think the department that you were working in was the costume department, and you are in a uh, fairly high rank at this point. So as somebody who is in charge, nominally, of the costume department, what would those duties entail? You're beyond just uh, a little bit of sewing, needle and thread now. Oh, let's see. I think I will want to bring in some more consultants who will be able to suggest other things rather than the same fur coats from, you know, the time trout from the time tunnels caveman episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I was looking at like Spock's, they put Spock in that sort of uh, mechanics uh, coveralls and knowing that they reuse things, I was trying to think of another episode where that had appeared or someone mm. who fit Leonard Nimoy's measurements. And I, I couldn't come up with anything. Was Captain Christopher wearing something like that? No, they put they he was in his flight suit and then he was in a uniform. Yeah. So he did have something kind of similar in this side of paradise. Maybe it was the same thing. Whenever Spock is uh yeah. is compromised, he, he, pl- he wears the green canvas, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's his casual wear. Right, that's Spock's casual wear. <laughs> Vulcan you know, what's 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 in in Vulcan fashion? Forget the robes. He wants something that yeah won't stain. Yeah, and is is uh, tough. He works hard. He plays hard. Uh, well, the robes with the script is for special occasions, and then you just have the drab all green <laughs> jumpsuit. Functional, yeah, not aesthetic. Functional. Yeah. It's 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 logical clothing. Well, as the uh, head of the costume department, I, I trust you. Well, thank you. Well, Commander Leisner, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I can most easily been, be found on Twitter at, at BLeisner. All right, well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. And we're signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, 
Sailor Moon. All right, now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prison power make up a new episode. Better amidships. Study as she goes. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Daddy,